turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And as you do that, let me uh, inform you about a change we'll be making in our worship services next week. Uh, it may affect you in this, in terms of the service you want to attend. Next week, the, the first service will no longer be mask required. Masks will be welcomed there. There will be, for those who are still high risk, a mask required section. In the first service, this section over here will be mask required. So if you're at home and you're high risk and you're trying to figure out, can I come back and still be safe? Uh, we will have a section blocked off where everyone in that section will be wearing a mask. But the first service will be open to those of you who are not wearing masks next week, if that fits your world more conveniently. Um, so Daniel chapter 9 today. Uh, the back end of Daniel chapter 9. Here are some quotes from some scholars on this section of Scripture. Uh, Professor Joyce Baldwin says, This is the most difficult text in the book of Daniel. And if you've read the book of Daniel, you know that there's some other spots that ain't easy. So uh, there's that. And then Professor Stephen Miller says, These are four of the most controversial verses in the Bible. So um, this week... I did a lot of reading and consulted um, a number of folks this week. So all of those guys and some others I've been reading and interacting with and none of them except the last two agreed with each other. Okay. And that's because the same guy wrote the last two <laughs> resources uh, that I sh showed you up there. Um, one of the guys called to mind this Peanuts cartoon where Linus is interpreting a nursery rhyme. He tells Charlie Brown, um, the way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates a rise in farm prices. Linus asks Charlie if he agrees, and Charlie confesses, I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature, he says. That would be Charlie Brown's loss, because God has given these difficult, mysterious portions of Scripture to us for our good. Not all of prophetic literature is confusion and chaos. So when I go through these sections of, of Scripture, I work with kind of two buckets that I put the teaching in. Um, the first bucket is this we know. And the second book, bucket is we shall see. So um, there are things that the very best of scholars cannot seem to agree on. And in our passage today, it's the details. Um, those we put in the category of we shall see. As history unfolds, we'll see how, what, what it meant. But there are other things that are so very encouraging and are largely agreed upon by all who study these passages. And we put those in the this we know category. And if we miss what we can know because of that which we cannot, it will be a great Charlie Brown size loss for us. And so we want to keep our eyes out this morning, especially for the things that are clear that we can know from this mysterious, beautiful passage but we should pray. So let's, let's pray before we open it up together. Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, give us wisdom to understand this mysterious vision given to your servant, Daniel. 
But Lord, also help us see you in it. Help us be strengthened in our faith because of it. These things we can know. We pray your help now, Jesus. Amen. All right, the opening verses mercifully gift us some beautiful things that belong in the this we know category. Let's, let's look at those together, starting verse 20 of Daniel 9. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, that's Jerusalem. So this is the setting. Daniel is still in prayer. You remember last week in Daniel chapter 9, it was a response to what he was reading written by the prophet Jeremiah um, concerning the end of the captivity of his people under the regime of Babylon. So verse 2, we saw of chapter 9 last week, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So this realization that he was coming up on 70 years of captivity in Babylon triggered this what is one of the most beautiful and earnest and exemplary prayers of confession in all of the Bible. We looked at that last week. And Daniel is still in that place of prayer when the angel Gabriel arrives with this new vision in chapter 9, the part we're looking at today. Look at verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So it says that Gabriel, this angelic being, arrives at the time of the evening sacrifice, around three probably in the afternoon. What's fascinating about that is um, they had not been able to keep, Daniel not been able to keep this evening sacrifice for about 70 years. The whole time he's in captivity, they have not been able to worship God in this way. But Daniel still marks his day with the acts of worship that he longs to offer to his God. Okay? It speaks of his fidelity to God and the longings of, her, of his heart. If you didn't figure it out in the first six chapters of this book, Daniel's awesome, right? Daniel is awesome. But what I want you to see that's really of interest here is that Gabriel's arrival, this angel Gabriel, his arrival is directly linked to Daniel's praying, right? At the beginning of Daniel's plea for mercy, Gabriel says, a word went out, assumingly from God, and Gabriel is the delivery boy bringing that message in response to Daniel's praying. Soon as he started praying, God responded with a word that Gabriel brought. Prayer triggers actions in the heavenlies that we are rarely, if ever, made aware of. Here we get a rare glimpse of how one man's prayer triggers angelic messengers to be sent in response to prayer. And we're going to see an amazing example of this next week in chapter 10 that's absolutely fascinating. But church, be encouraged. 
Your prayers, even when you can't see the answer, are doing work in the spiritual realm that you have no knowledge of. Your prayers matter. This we know. Okay? That's in the this we know bucket. But before we get into the we shall see portion of this message, there's one other word of encouragement that the angel Gabriel brings to Daniel in verse 23 that I want to underscore for us. He says, uh, Daniel, you are greatly loved. That'd be a pretty cool thing for an angel to show up and tell you, right? It happens three times to Daniel. It happens here and then twice in chapter 10, verse 11 of chapter 10, he said to Daniel, oh, Daniel, man, greatly loved. And down in verse 19 of that same chapter, oh, man, greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. It's the language of, that's used with respect to treasure, like the purest gold or the costliest of gifts or the finest thing in your wardrobe or the, the, the best food on your table. This is how God thinks of Daniel. Now, like I said, Daniel's awesome. But this title of being greatly loved is not only Daniel's. It's lavished on all of us. Jesus says it stunningly in John 15. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So the way the Father loves Jesus is the way Jesus loves us, his disciples. So this we know, this goes into this we know bucket. We are wildly loved by God such that he would give his son to bring us life and bring us near. Paul writes about that in Ephesians. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then down in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were, once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So those of you who hope in Jesus you, too, are greatly loved by God. This we know. Okay. This we know. Now, now let's look at some of the we shall see matters. Okay. Listen to verses 24 and following. The angel says, Seventy weeks are decreed, Daniel, about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and, and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again within squares and moat, a reference to the city, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing and the people of the prince who, shall, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Alrighty, then. We shall see indeed, right? Um... So, if you were to try to sort through all this and figure out how this plays out, here's a sampling of some of the interpretive questions that are raised by all of this, uh, these weeks and this vision. 
what are these sevens or weeks? Because it's really actually literally says the seven, seven, 77 is the language. Are they weeks or are they weeks of years? Are they to be taken literally? Do they mean 490 years or some symbolic way? Is the most holy at the end of verse 24 a place or possibly a person? Um, is what word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is meant in verse 25? Is it a prophetic word like Jeremiah's? Or is it Cyrus's decree in Ezra? Or Artaxerxes in Ezra? Or maybe another one in Nehemiah? Is the anointed one of verse 25 referring to the Messiah or some other leader? Who is the anointed one who's cut off in verse 26? Is he identical to the anointed one of verse 25? Who's the leader coming in verse 26? Who is the he who makes a firm covenant in verse 27? The anointed one or the leader who's coming? What sort of covenant is it? Is it beneficial or is it detrimental? Is it positive or negative when sacrifice and offering stop in verse 27? What does all this mean? Okay. And that is a sampling of the troublesome questions that you have to sort through in Daniel chapter 9. Now back in 400 A.D., one of the great minds and linguists of the church, um, the church father Jerome said this. He says, because it is unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one above another, I shall simply repeat the view of each and leave it to the reader's judgment as to the explanation that ought to be followed. And then he listed nine conflicting opinions on the meaning of this passage, declaring himself unable to decide which one was right. So this morning, I am channeling my inner Jerome, but I am not going to give you nine options. I'll give you three that are commonly held amongst good Christian scholars these days. So you have a sense about the different ways that our scholars um, are wrestling with this whole thing. And I'm indebted to Pastor Kyle Dillon for these helpful charts, and I'll, I'll post them on the leader blog this week if you're inclined to root through them. So here's kind of in visual language how this passage is laid out, right? So the first thing you've got is um, the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem that starts seven weeks, and then you have 62 weeks, and then you have one more week, 70 weeks. So seven plus 62 plus one equals 70. You have an anointed prince who comes here, and then you have anointed one being cut off. Um, you have the city and sanctuary being destroyed, and then you've got an end to sin and everlasting righteousness coming in there. How, how do we make sense out of all this? Well, there's three common, there's more than three. I'm going to show you three common ways to think through this. The first of these is um, a kind of a past, whoa, kind of a past way of thinking about it. So that's what preterist means. It simply means past. And the idea is that from where we sit, this is all fulfilled already. Okay? It doesn't point towards the end of time. So they would say that it starts with a decree by Cyrus in 538. Then there are seven plus 62 weeks that are not literal. They're probably approximate um, years. They're not to be taken precisely. That gets you up to the baptism of Jesus in AD 26. Um, and then there's this 70th week where the Messiah is cut off. That's the crucifixion. And then the 70th week ends when the temple is destroyed by the Roman armies of Titus in AD 70. So this was all future to Daniel, but it's already been fulfilled in this view. Okay? 
And it has remarkable correspondence with what really happened in AD 70. It's truly amazing. Um, so that's how some scholars would think about it. Here's another way to look at it. If you can give me the next one. Okay, this would be a futurist reading um, that takes the years literally. They mean exactly years, maybe 365 days, or sometimes the prophets would shorten them to 360 days. And people who hold this view work really, really hard on dates. So they have a different starting date, a uh, different decree, and then seven plus 62 weeks, 483 years exactly. And scholars have done amazing work to where it comes out exactly at Jesus' crucifixion um, in AD 30, 33. So they've looked back and kind of worked the numbers to get an exact fit in this kind of scenario. It's really quite amazing. But then there's a, a gap that happens here between these 69 weeks and the 70th week, which is yet future and has come right before Christ's second coming. You've heard it called the Great Tribulation that happens in that period. The Antichrist comes during that period. He breaks his covenant and sets up an abomination in the temple. That's future, yet future to us. So that's a literal futurist way of thinking about this. Let me give you one more way that scholars uh, think about it. This is a symbolic futurist way to think about it. The years aren't literal, okay? They are intended to um, depict periods of time. So that happens especially with the language of 77s. Seven is a very symbolic number in the Bible, and you've heard Jesus use it symbolically, right? He told Peter, Peter said, how often I gotta forgive my brother? He said, um, seven times seven, Figurative or literal? Figurative. If you don't get permission on the 50th time to whack your brother. He's saying the number seven means fullness or completion. Seven times seven, you always forgive, right? So it's, it, some of these numbers are freighted with symbolism in the way they're used in Scripture. So it, in, in understanding that, they would take the start with the decree of Cyrus. There's 69 not literal years that come to where the Messiah, uh, the baptism of Jesus, and then it goes on into the 70th week, which again, these are symbolic times. We're living in the 70th week now, according to this view, right? We're in the first three and a half years of the 70th week, and the, the, then the last half of that, the Antichrist would come in the future and persecute the church and lead up to the end of, the end of time. So, that's a third way that really, these are all held by really good, godly, smart scholars, right? They just can't quite agree on how to think about all these things. Some of you are wondering, what do I think? You're going to pick up a little bit if you listen closely in the, in the rest of the sermon, kind of where I lean. But I really agree with Alistair Begg and says, in what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. Okay, that's kind of where I'm at here. The last scholar I read usually wins because uh, they're smarter than me. But honestly, none of these views are without significant issues. You know, if, if, you're a, if you hold to a past fulfillment, really? It fulfilled all the language? that Jesus talked about in Matthew and that Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, it was all fulfilled in the past, really? Um, if you are a, a literal futurist, where does that gap come from? 
Daniel doesn't really talk about a gap that lasts thousands of years between the 69 weeks and the seven weeks. That's a bit of a problem. Now, of course, there, there is a bit of a gap between Jesus' first coming and second coming that they didn't see either, but it's difficult. And those, the correspondence in those numbers, they really did have to work the numbers pretty hard to make them fit. Um, and, and the symbolism, you know, if it's symbolic, either 69 years really are shorter than the seven years. The seven years go on for thousands. There are difficulties that we struggle with with every one of these positions. If somebody had nailed it all, they would have won the day by now. Um, so how will the 77s of Daniel unfold in the future? We'll see. We shall see. This kind of goes in the we shall see bucket. And these things help us think wisely about it as we're about to see because there are some really encouraging teachings embedded even in this section that fit into this we know bucket, okay? And I, I wanna spend most of our time looking at those uh, this morning because the first of these sure teachings are found right out of the blocks in the vision in verse 24 where Gabriel lists six beautiful purposes of God that will come to pass in the course of these 77s that likely represent all of history okay, from that point forward. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. And the first three of those kind of sound like they go together. Finishing transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity. So clearly, God is bringing, one of, one of God's great purposes in history is to bring about the end of sin and to make payment for it as his purposes unfold. We see this at the cross where Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and made atonement for it. He took our place there. He covered our sin. He cleansed us from it and restored us to a right relationship with God. And at his return, the limit of sin set by God in this world will have been reached and Jesus will return as judge and he will put an end to sin, all of it, okay, all of it. As the old hymn puts it, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. What, what a day that will be. There's coming a day when we will not sin There'll be no sin on this planet. Isaiah said it beautifully. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. No more sin, not even the memory of it. Hear the prophet Micah as he says beautifully, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Okay, this we know. God is working out his purposes in these 77s, though we don't quite know the order. But he is bringing about the end of sin. This we know with certainty. Okay. Now these last three purposes in that list of six in verse 24 are more positive. They describe what God is doing, not what he is doing away with uh, throughout history. So it says... 
If you look again at verse 24, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. So in place of sin, God is bringing righteousness. So rather than loving and choosing our sin, we will find our hearts bent to love and choose God and find our satisfaction in Him. The sealing of the vision indicates that these prophecies are made sure they're sealed until Jesus himself breaks them open in Revelation 6 when history is made complete and the nations are fully subject to Jesus' great rule. To anoint a most holy place that looks probably distant into the future at the temple on the new earth or you could say the lack of a temple on the new earth. Revelation 21 talks about it. I saw no temple in the new city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And we, God will dwell with us, and we will be his people. So these six things God will do as these 77s make their way to an end. The end of sin and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. This we know, this we know with certainty. So before he says anything else, Gabriel announces these certain six great purposes of God that he is bringing out for our good in these 77s that describe the span of history. Now he does that because the description of those 77s is fraught with suffering and hardship from start to finish. Look again at verse 25 and 26 with me. For 62 weeks... The city shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. I think a reference to Jesus. Even Jesus will suffer. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So you heard the language, right? Troubled times. The anointed cut off and left with nothing. The city and the sanctuary destroyed. A flood. War until the end. Desolations are decreed. They're decreed. The implication is they're decreed by God, right? God is sovereign over all of this. The suffering that we endure as God's people is not a surprise to God. He wasn't looking the other way and, oh no, they fell into suffering. They are part of what He has decreed. He is not unaware or uninformed or unable to avert it. These desolations are decreed by God. And that final week is no better. Hear, hear it in an, another translation that might be language you're familiar with. In verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus seizes on this language to describe a being in the future who is symbolic of pure evil. He speaks of it in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he's referencing our verses. 
let the reader understand. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And a litany of suffering is described that follows. And then verse 21, he says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Now Daniel was speaking of this sometime around 600, in the 600s B.C., long, long before. And it had an initial fulfillment in um, someone named Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century. We'll talk more about him in a couple of weeks in chapter 11. But Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC slaughtered 40,000 Jews and plundered the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar, spread its... um, fluids around the grounds of the temple and erected a statue for Zeus. Um, It was a sacrilege of indescribable proportions, it said. And Jesus seizes on that, Daniel's prediction of that, and looks to the future where there will be another desecration of the temple. Um, Jesus is prophesying this around A.D. 33, In AD 70, the temple was destroyed um, by Titus and uh, a remarkable fulfillment. And then then it bounces to yet another, yet future abomination of desolation that will likely come at the end of time. And scholars struggle with this. Was it all past? Um, Was it just about the temple in Jerusalem or does it have elements of the future? And my favorite scholar puts it this way. Is Jesus referring to the time of the temples and Jerusalem's destruction, or is he referring to the end of time? Most likely, the answer is both. So it is both, actually, it's past, it's present in Jesus' time, and it's future. And that's one of your elders, Ben Merkel, uh, writing about this in one of his many books that he has written. So all of that to say, great troubles await God's people by his decree both in the past we see and in our future okay long suffering Daniel is saying will be required he said it over and over and over the visions teach it over and over and over this we know this we know without question okay but we also know that there's mercy in all of this. In fact, this whole vision is given to Daniel because he prayed for mercy. Um, Verse 23, the, the angel says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And back in verse 3, Daniel was praying. It says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. And down in verse 18, we saw last week, Last week, it's the whole basis for his prayer. He says, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And so this message is a message of mercy to God's people to help them persevere to the end. And And look what you find right at the end. Look at the last phrase, the last breath of this prophecy in verse 27. At the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. 
on this, this man of lawlessness, this abomination of desolation has an end. So not just desolations are decreed, so too is an end to the desolations, an end to this embodiment of evil called the abomination. So he will end, it will end, evil will end. This we know, this we know with certainty. First John says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil and the last pages of the Bible describe how it will happen. In Revelation 20, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. These are the devil's armies. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There will be an end to evil. This we know. I was talking to one of our expectant ladies between services and I said, this, this is like pregnancy. You're sick and you suffer and then it's worth it all. It comes to an end, right? That's what he's describing. This is history. This is the span of history for us. We are sick and we suffer and the angel is saying, it will be worth it all. All that will come to an end. And so we want to close our service today by remembering what we know best, the truest of truths, the great victory that Jesus inaugurated on the cross. And the Apostle Paul writes about it when he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And as we take this supper to remember that act, we are also proclaiming the consummation of that victory when Jesus returns. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so today we want to use the table as a means to draw near to Jesus the Christ who will bring an end to sin and usher in all righteousness and find grace so that we will have help in our time of need so we can be faithful to him. This is what Hebrews says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So at North Wake, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is open to everyone who's a follower of Jesus who is walking in fellowship with him. If that describes you, you are welcome here today. And I'd like to ask you as you approach the table, we'll use this center aisle and the two wall aisles to come and approach the table. We'll use these two to return to our seats. And I'd like you to take the elements, they are both contained in one cup, Take it back to your seats and hold it until all have been served. And then we'll partake of these elements together as God's people um, here at North Wake. So let me pray for us and then you may come and, and partake of the mercy of Christ in this table. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we come to your table and we're reminded unbelievably that we are greatly loved 
And this is the great demonstration of it. While we were sinners, Jesus, you gave yourself for us. And we declare together our hope that one day suffering and sorrow and evil will end. Sin will end. And so we come, Jesus, to this table, proclaiming that by faith and seeking strength to stand until that day. So have mercy on us now, your people, as we honor you and obey you and remember you and love you back.
Now as